Well played with the acapella, wouldn't you agree? Sort of liked that. I was getting into that. That's good. How are you today? Good. The rest of you? Not so good, I guess. Tired? Yeah. Yeah. That, every one of those, I felt every one of those 136 registered uh, people this week. That's for sure. But it was a glorious week, and we wanted to take the opportunity to make sure you all had access to seeing uh, some of the fruit of your labor because you all have worked so hard to help Vacation Bible School happen. And I know that Vacation Bible School has fallen on hard times in some places, and a program can change and morph and even cease to exist across the life of a church. Church has a call to make disciples, uh, not necessarily to have a certain program forever, but for whatever reason, in our context, the Lord keeps using it and using it and using it, and you keep supporting it and supporting it and supporting it. And I mean, we have, uh, we have so many volunteers. It's such an encouragement to see so many people come out uh, to try to serve and be a part. We have folks that take off work. Perhaps you're one of those folks take off work just to be a part of the VBS because they get really tired at night, right? <laughs> and so they don't want to get up and go to work the next day necessarily, so they use vacation. I'm just, you know, I'm amazed by that. It's an opportunity for people to plug in and uh, really thankful for, for the fruit of that. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 12 for the final 13 verses of this book. If you're new with us today, you're coming in on the very last sermon in the very last chapter of a long series of expositional sermons through the book of Daniel. I pray that we've grown through this. And if you're new with us, I hope pray that you'll grow through this today. It is our habit to preach through books of the Bible consecutively with expositions, and we intend to start Exodus next week for your information. Daniel chapter 1 through chapters 1 through 6 tells the story of Daniel and his three friends carted off to exile in Babylon, living a life filled with tension, facing persecution from Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus. Daniel represents how rulers come and go, but God's people stay, they endure. Daniel's chapters 7 through 12 covers the same time frame, but more movement toward apocalyptic vision. In fact, the second part of the book is four apocalyptic visions. So when we come to Daniel 12, we're situating ourselves in the fourth of four apocalyptic visions, which was given to Daniel in and around the 530s BC upon the returning from exile, being allowed to return home for most of God's people that wanted to go, but not Daniel. Daniel had to stay in Babylon as an administrator in the now ruling Persian Empire, He's probably in his 80s as he's receiving this last vision that's recorded for us in Holy Scripture in Daniel 12. And Daniel 10, 11, and 12 shapes that vision for us. It shows us in Daniel 10 what it's like for Daniel to have this encounter with the divine. And it, if you remember Daniel 10, it's, it throttles Daniel. He's, he's on the ground. He's comatose. He's, he can't stand. He has to be helped to speak. It's... it's Shattering. So we talked about how God isn't to be flittered with. It, it's, it's not a casual thing to come into the knowledge of the holy. And when we have in, what we have in chapter 11 is the meat of the vision, which last week was 
came across, at least for part of the sermon, as one big history lesson. Because the north and the south, in terms of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, they warred over the space that God's people were called back to in Jerusalem. And they took their wrath out when one of them would lose. The other one would retreat and very often would take their wrath out on Jerusalem. And the apex of this was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who desecrated the altar in Jerusalem and is the seminal figure toward the end of Daniel 11 and is being alluded to as a type in Daniel chapter 12, as a type of um, wicked ruler that would punish God's people for his own wrathful purposes. So when Daniel 11 zeroes in on Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his rage that he took out on Jerusalem for about three and a half years, that time frame becomes really important for the text of Daniel chapter 12. You're going to hear reference to a time frame like that. And the Maccabees, the Maccabeans, the Jewish Maccabean faithful, fought back against Antiochus Epiphanes and when they did that, they essentially established control, puppet control, for about 100 years. But the cost to the people was tremendous. Estimates of 80,000 men, women, and children were killed just simply for believing the Scriptures and trying to practice faithful sacrifice. In other words, it would be the functional equivalent of us being wantonly murdered, man, woman, and child, for worshiping our God faithfully today. It would be the same sort of thing that was going on then. And we see that the faithfulness of God's people came at a tremendous cost. One theologian, Don Carson, noted it like this. He said, Antiochus IV stopped the daily sacrifice at the temple and substituted the sacrifice of pigs, which were considered unclean. And he dedicated those sacrifices to Baal Shaman, which was the Syrian equivalent of the Greek god Zeus. And so Antiochus IV set up in the temple this original abomination that causes desolation that you're going to, to hear about in our reading today. I feel the need to frame some of this because there's some, there's some language that's foreign to us, some phrases that are foreign to us. I want to explain it a little, read it, and then explain it a little more and make application because some of it is difficult and foreign for us. So the New Testament picks up on the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. And the New Testament uses the phrase to describe a future sacrilege, some kind of future sacrilege. So we see the transtemporal nature of prophecy, of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We see this language of three and a half years picked up in the New Testament as well in the Apocalypse to John, Revelation. What we find there is the three and a half years, or thereabout, is picked up in Revelation 11, 12, and 13. Revelation 13 picks up with the dragon appointing a beast that desecrates the worship and attempts to falsify God's people. In Revelation 12:6, we have a war with none other than Michael, and Michael is exactly where we pick up with in Daniel chapter 12. It's the figure that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Three and a half years might be thought of as a shortened period of time. Half of a fullness of time. We know that seven days is, represents a full week of creation. We've talked about seven as a number of fullness or completion. 
Revelation uses sevens all over the place, and I think that very likely three and a half years, um, the number of days it's mentioned that references three and a half years, or a time, times, and half a time, is likely referencing half of a complete number, or a little over half, which we'll get into momentarily. Daniel chapter 12 splits at verse 5, between 4 and 5. So we're going to take it on two parts today. That's why I'll preach it. I'll preach the first four verses as God's provision for the saints. And I'll preach verses 5 to 13 as a call to the saints to persevere. So provision and perseverance, I think, thematically explain the two sections here. It is a call to perseverance. I think it's a call to endure is what we're looking at from the text today, trying to let the text speak to us and minister to us and draw inferences and applications from the text. I think it's a call for the saints to endure to the end. And that's what we labor for here. It's how we gain assurance together in in this project that is the church um, is through the right teaching of God's Word. So with, with, with that sort of understanding of some of the textual themes and the difficulties, let's just hear the text read. I won't comment on it at all. Just read it straight through verses 1 to 13. So hear the word of the Lord from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many... Of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that... When the shattering of the people, of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wise shall act wickedly. The, but the wicked shall act wickedly, I meant to say. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days." May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto those here. Let's pray together now. God, we've already asked for your illumination. We want to ask for it again at this point. Our Daniel is no easy book to understand, and yet you call us to seek understanding. 
Lord, grant us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to take this text on two parts. So the first, the first part is the first four verses, and we're thinking about the provision that God makes for the saints to life, which is opposite of the judgment that will be pronounced upon the unwise unto death, and the criteria for either one. So we'll think of it that way. So God makes provision for the saints to eternal life. We see that in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, very, very clearly. We see everlasting life and everlasting contempt. The Bible teaches that after death, believers go immediately to be with Christ. Like the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, Luke 23, 43 says. Or to depart this body is to be at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says. Or for Paul the apostle, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1, 23. Immediate gain. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, deceased saints appear aware of this earthly drama and are concerned for how long, O Lord, this will go on during the age of our time as the church. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 really confirms this thought process. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 say, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So what we have here is sacrificed souls, martyrs. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So God makes provision for the saints to eternal life, and there's concern for this drama as we've passed on from these earthly scenes. But God also makes judgment on the unwise to eternal death. God makes judgment on the unwise to eternal death. If you look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the second part of it, after it says, some go to everlasting life, it says, some to everlasting contempt, which is shame. Shame and everlasting contempt. Shame, like no false shame that we've known now, like no shame that we've ever known. It's eternal shame. For they will have been found ever rejecting and having contempt for the truest truth in the history of the world, that is, Jesus Christ, the truth. Theologian John Frame asks and answers this question this way, Where are the wicked in the intermediate state, that is, between their death and the final judgment upon the return of Christ? He answers, In torment, awaiting judgment. Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus is not just a story. As I understand it, it pictures Jesus' own view of what the afterlife is really like. The poor man is in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in torment, receiving no mercy. No one can cross from one place to the other. This fact tells us that although the final judgment remains future, our eternal destinies are set at death. After death, no one can change from righteousness to wickedness, nor can any wicked person repent of sin and be accepted by God. It is true that Scripture uses sleep as a metaphor for death in Matthew and John 11. All cultures are hesitant to speak of death directly. So we today say that someone has passed away. But Scripture is very explicit in distinguishing sleep from death. In John 11, 11 to 14, Jesus says that his friend Lazarus has 
fallen asleep. But when the disciples misunderstand and question him further, he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. Sleep is enough like death to be used as a metaphor for death, but the Bible clearly does not regard the two as the same. So God makes judgment on the unwise to eternal death, same as he has made provision to have us found at judgment worthy of eternal life. So by what criteria? What criteria is used to determine whether one passes to eternal life or eternal contempt? It seems to be found right in the text itself. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And those who are wise shall shine. Later it says the wise shall understand. But here it says the wise shall, the wise shall shine. Hard to spit out. The wise shall shine. Say that five times real fast. The wise shall shine. The wise shall yeah, very hard to say. The wise shall shine. Like the brightness of the sky above, and and here's our answer, those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So there is a turning of many to righteousness. It is a role that is played by the believers for those who will believe. That is calling them to turn to righteousness, ostensibly from unrighteousness. Righteousness. So the criteria for everlasting life rather than everlasting contempt is turning to righteousness during this very life. That fuller righteousness is Christ's righteousness. In another place in Scripture, Scripture teaches that though Jesus did not sin himself, he became sin for his people, for us. That we might become the righteousness of of God, that we might become righteous, that we might turn to righteousness and be found righteous. It is true that we who put our whole trust in Christ do not hope in ourselves or our own current righteous acts, but we do start to show the illumination of Christ in us. We start to show the work of Spirit, of the Spirit in our lives, more or less the shining like the brightness of the sky above that's mentioned, the watching world can see in the church in her brighter moments a light shining in a dark world. Perhaps that's why the Gospels can say things like wisdom is proved right by her actions because our actions prove wisdom right. Most assuredly, it's why James writes the way he does about justification having works follow it in James chapter 2, putting no ground for salvation in our works, but saying that Christ's salvation in us produces works. And the watching world sees. Sometimes they see and join. Sometimes they see and resent. But they watch and they see. Christ is the wise. Christ is wisdom personified. No matter how much an unbeliever increases knowledge in subjects, Daniel 12.4 says that they're like running to and fro, or like the New Testament says it, ever learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. In this context, like the book of Proverbs, it is he who wins souls that is wise. I wonder today, is your soul one to Christ? 
I ask you today, are you wisely working to turn many toward righteousness as Daniel 12, 3 ends? The indication here is you must turn from your unrighteous sin and turn to Christ. These are what we call two sides of the same coin of salvation. Of your name being written in God's salvation book, the Lamb's book of life, as it's termed in another place. It's to turn from something and to someone. It's to turn from your sin, that's repentance, and it's to turn to Christ, that's faith. So the gospel being received for salvation is about both repentance and faith. We cannot take away from salvation repentance. We must repent. How could you rightly have faith in Christ and run from His righteousness and His calls to obey His commands? It's antithetical. It makes no sense. You can't love that which Christ hates and claim to love Christ. It makes no sense. So repentance is part of it. A godly remorse to put it in the language of 2 Corinthians. But at the same time, our repentance will never be thorough enough and careful enough to justify ourselves. Our repentance is a, an act of good faith. It is faith that commands victory. We must have faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, for our righteousness. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same gospel coin. And it's a gospel unbeliever that I want to share with you today in no uncertain terms. Unbeliever, there is no time to spare. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, but even if you get tomorrow, there is no guarantee that tomorrow will make a more compelling case than today. In fact, it may be less as you become more and more anesthetized to the truth that's been told to you again and again and again. We pray that you would be sensitive to the Spirit, but unbeliever, I must tell you that the wisest decision you will ever make is to trust Christ. There is no wiser decision than to trust Christ. In our age that's been dubbed the information age, we are rightly described as ever increasing in knowledge, and yet our sense of spiritual things may be as dull as ever. How much we need Christ at work in us and through us to preach the message of true truth to a world that's ever so confused. And oh, how I call you to the salvation that's freely offered to you today, but you must receive it. There will never be a day like today for you to believe on Christ for salvation. And that is all that it is. I'm not writing for you a model prayer. I'm asking you to pray a prayer of good faith for the first time to say, maybe with your eyes wide open and maybe under your breath right now, in spite of the words I keep saying in the sermon, God, forgive me, a sinner. Save my soul. Faith and repentance is wrapped up in those simple sentences. It's not about exactly what you say. It's about the heart behind what you say. It's about turning to the Lord and trusting Him. But there's no time to spare. When you receive Christ, you receive what He's already made available to you in His work, in His death, burial, and resurrection after His perfectly lived life. And you receive what's to come after His ascension. He said He would, at His ascension, He said He would come again. And your salvation is evidence of His prior work in you. It's assurance of everlasting life, to use the language of this passage, rather than everlasting contempt. 
If you hold Christ in contempt, you have no claim on everlasting life. You will be in contempt of God's righteous, just, final courtroom. And you will carry your contempt for the truth right into eternal torment. Contempt is a good word for our age, isn't it? There's a lot of contempt. I suppose a good bit of it I understand. But I assure you, we cannot rightly aim our contempt toward our Creator. He is not worthy of such a tone. Look at what, in spite of our sin, in spite of our lineage of sin from our first parent, Adam, look at what a wonderful salvation He's made available to us. He is so loving toward we, His ugly and wayward sheep. How could we be carrying an attitude of contempt? Let's repent of that today, shall we? Let's repent of any contemptuous attitude. The hues of bitterness that pervade your attitude. Let's repent of it today. Let's turn it over to Jesus today. Because you don't want these people watching to see a dull brightness. You want them to see your light shining like a bright light on a hill to see. You want this church's witness of what you're a part of not to be dim, but to be bright for even the dimmest eyes to see. You want our words to be clear so that even the duller ears can hear. We want to proclaim the gospel of Christ in a compelling manner to people all around us. Let go of contempt, bitterness. It's been misdirected if it's been directed at Christ who has been so loving towards you. And it's misguided if you think that somehow you are winning friends and influencing people by walking around with an air of superiority cloaked in a temperament of bitterness. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, is it not? However, what we as believers have found is that He will not mishandle your fear of Him. Not today and not ever. He won't mishandle your fear of Him. For the fear of God, Scripture says, is the beginning of knowledge, of truth. I'm so sorry for the deceit and the lies that you've been told, but it's, it's not God's fault. The battle between the deceiver and the truth-teller, it wages on. Daniel 12.1 references it with the warring angel Michael heading up the heavenly army to get this truth to you. To get you to trust in the shed blood of Christ and to live on the word of His testimony. Satan ever lives to accuse you. But your humility, in even in small part, is evidence of God's work in you. So shine on. God makes provision for His saints to life. And lift Jesus high. John says in his Gospel that if Jesus be lifted high, or Jesus says, then He will draw all men unto Himself. And I think lifting the Messiah high, lifting our Lord high, is exactly 
what's taking place in the second part of our text, which leads to the perseverance of the saints. So the provision of the saints is eternal life. In the midst of this difficult life, we have the perseverance of the saints on display. Look at verse 5 and following. Daniel speaks in the first person, seeing. It's an apocalyptic vision. And he sees two others. These are angels, maybe Gabriel and Michael. One on one side of the stream and one on the other side. So this is the river Tigris. It's a fertile place. You have an angel on either side in this vision. And then you have a seminal figure, a heavenly messenger. Some might say the pre-incarnate Christ standing above it all. It says in verse 6, Someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So there's a question to the one standing above the stream. How long, O Lord? How long? Very similar to that question that was asked in Revelation 6. How long do we need to endure, Lord? It's hard. It's hard. How long do we need to endure? And he heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, verse 7, and as if to swear by oath, he raises his hands, right hand and his left toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And I exhausted a good seven minutes talking about things preliminarily before we started this sermon, so I won't do that again, but just to remind you, three and a half years is probably what we're talking about here. And it says it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an, to an end, all these things would be finished. And then Daniel says, I heard, but I, I did not understand. I heard, but I did not understand. So let's, let's sort of re- recap this a little bit and think about what we're hearing and what Daniel was seeing and what we're now hearing in this text. Remember, Daniel's a very old man. He's been exiled from his home for a long time. He didn't get to grow up in his teenagers with his parents. He didn't have a normal childhood. He had to show restraint towards certain kinds of partying in the Babylonian court. He was, his life was threatened by more than one ruler. He was envied. He was, he was very envied by other people that had administrative positions in the land in which he lived, in the kingdom in which he served. And he sought the welfare of Babylon, like Jeremiah taught them to do, even though his heart was back with temple sacrifice and godly worship in Jerusalem. So he bowed three times a day, and he prayed. And he nearly lost his life simply for that simply for praying, if you remember the lion's den saga. And so here's Daniel, very, very old, just hoping that his sacrifice has been efficacious for somebody. He doesn't want his people to suffer anymore. What a wonderful mediator, not the best mediator. What a wonderful mediator, presented as an exemplar mediator to point to a true and better mediator, which of course we know is the Lord Christ. But here he is, having a vision of something wonderful, a heavenly messenger elevated above the river Tigris, clothed in linen, which sounds strikingly familiar not only to Daniel 10, the introduction of this fourth and final vision, but also Revelation 1, the introduction to the last book of the Bible. Christ would be born during the reign of King Herod in Bethlehem during the census to the Virgin Mary, seed of the Spirit, around the time that we reckon time with, B.C. and A.D. In fact, Christ splits time. And... He gets asked a question, or whomever his messenger is here gets asked a question, how long? How long, O Lord? A common theme in these apocalyptic texts. How long must the saints suffer? How long 
do they need to endure? What do they need to endure? We want details, don't we? Tell me now. I want to know. I want to know. We probably couldn't handle it if we knew, to be honest. I mean, if I'd known what the last 20 years would hold, I might have been tempted not to walk through it. And then all the blessings that would have been missed and the sanctification that wouldn't have been had. It is true that trusting is sometimes better than knowing, isn't it? It is accurate to say that His absolute awareness and control of where time is going is to be preferred to mine or yours, isn't it? Perhaps that's why the text says, no man knoweth the hour or the day of Christ's return. Many have tried to figure it out, haven't they? They've staked whole conferences to it with Nostradamus-type precision. The Bible prophecy movement has said, this is the day, no, that's the day, no, this is the day, no, that's the day. And they've been wrong and wrong and wrong. And there's a simple text in the, te- in the Scripture that tells us, we don't know. Perhaps we need to get comfortably humble with that which we don't know. Now, it does not mean that everything is a mystery, that we know nothing. That, that's not the case. It's simply that it seems as if, in God's sovereign purposes, He doesn't want us to know specifics about dates. But we do know this, as I said, Christ splits time now, doesn't He? We know that much. And the wise can splice together truths from the prophecies that we do have. David Helm reminds the reader that the abomination can be seen on different horizons, on multiple horizons, so that the three and a half years, a period half of the seven-year number of completion, can be seen as a time cut off or a half of a time. The wicked seem unstoppable at times. They seem to shatter the saints' power, but they won't ultimately. Don't we see that wickedness of this unrestrained variety presses against everything that's believable? I mean, we we have an entire month that we are in right now dedicated to gaslighting you, trying to convince you that we are captains of our own ship, what biology that you want to choose to be. But Jesus is true truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus. He entered a hotbed of deceit in the first century A.D., tempted on every side, but He lived without sin. So your chaos can give way to order in Christ. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. A.W. Tozer said that a, a rightly decided biblical doctrine can relieve you of a multitude of worries and concerns. Throughout time, wickedness seeks to elevate its profile. Even before the age of social media, wickedness seeks to elevate its profile. But the wise are the ones that endure. God wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you understanding. Certainly for this life, but also understanding about everlasting life. And I keep calling to you with the heritage of the voices that call out of the wilderness like John the Baptist did, pointing to one greater than any preacher here. 
pointing to the Christ. Praying that the shining and the understanding of the saints will prove a compelling rather than a contemptuous witness before it's everlastingly too late. There's a lyric, time is on your side. You know, time is not on your side without Christ. In fact, these are the best days of your life. But time is on the side of the believer, isn't it? What is the old adage? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But you can't be on the wrong side of history if you're on Christ's side. I mean, you may be accused of that, but you can't be, ultimately. Telling people the truth is is not just a matter of of sort of checking the box of being self-righteous. We must be the ones that preserve the category of true truth. Like, we have to talk truthfully, because Jesus knew no lies. Righteousness commands us to speak truthfully. And there will be Antiochian times where God's people aren't just marginalized, but they're murdered. Where the worship of God will will be met with the barrel of a gun. But it doesn't change the trueness of truth, does it? I'm interested in this word time. One Hebrew word that's rightly translated time is used seven times in this text. A different Hebrew word that's also rightly translated time is used twice in the little phrase, a time, times and a half. Time is a theme within this text. Enduring through time is the way that I've seen the author's aim in this text. You think about it and consider what implications and applications that you draw from this text today. That's part of the body of Christ at work. It's, it reverberates. It means something to all of us. Something similar, but also something specific for our lives. But time, time is something that we know something about and yet something that we cannot fully quantify how it goes on. One said it like this, I mentioned Helm, I think he says it pretty succinctly, Daniel is politely told to go away in verse 9. Just go away. Despite Daniel's lack of comprehension, we have an advantage over him in this particular interpretive case. Several hundred years later, the Lord Jesus and those who followed him heard, on whom the end of the ages has come, in reference to Christ, in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Plus, we can look back now and perhaps have a, a, a greater comprehension than the old man Daniel did of Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 9.27. In Daniel 9.27, you may recall, the 70th and final week in the vision was said to be divided up in two equal half weeks, which could also be returning, referring to two sets of three and a half days, all of which was simply another way of saying a time, times, and half a time. There in chapter 9, the first half week was a symbol referring to the definite time period 
that separated Antiochus Epiphanes and his abomination of desolation in 165 BC from the cross of Christ, which put an end to the sacrificial system. But we also saw the second half week used to define the time between the cross and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Thus, we saw that time, times, and a half a time, two ways in Daniel 9, to refer to a fixed period of time leading up to Christ and to a fixed period of time after Christ, perhaps before AD 70. In another apocalyptic text where time, times, and half a time is used, Revelation 12, 14, it refers to the fixed season of persecution which the church endures from Satan, the dragon, between the death and resurrection of Christ and the final consummation. So what we can say with confidence is that time, times, and a half a time is used in different ways and can refer to a period of Jewish suffering up to the time of Christ. It can refer to a period of time between the first coming of Christ and the destruction of the temple, and it can refer to the season of suffering for Christians between the first and the second coming of Christ. So Daniel 12.9 perhaps points to the second coming of Christ. And when we read of the resurrection of the dead that occurs at the end of the age, it points to this. And the opposition of Antiochus Epiphanes against the Jews never quite reached the fullness of the shattering of the power of the holy people, as we've already shown. So there are layers to prophecy. There's layers to understanding time, some of which wisdom helps us to see, and some of which we have to punt and say humbly, I'm not exactly sure what this is going to look like in the end. But time being no more, as much as we're to hasten that day, throughout church history, that has yet to happen. And it may not happen before you pass from these earthly scenes. And so how much time do you have left? This text speaks to you. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, blessed is he who waits. Waits. Wait well. Wait well. And he arrives at the 1,335 days. That's exactly 45 days after the three-and-a-half-year approximation that's already been mentioned with the 1,290 days. I can only imagine what it would be like to think that you'd endured all that you can endure, and let's add 45 days, or let's add a brief time more. We're not going to get to seven. God's wrath will be completely and justly poured out on unbelievers. Satan's wrath will not have run-of-the-mill. But there is a time where it just looks like he does. And there are times it looks like that he does. But in God's fullness of time, he will come and end this life in which you live. Blessed are you who waits. It sounds like a beatitude, doesn't it? Like Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the waiters. I don't wait so well. I get wanting it done. How about you? Patience is another word for waiting, isn't it? Do you wait so well? Are you like me? I don't wait so well. A fruit of the Spirit is patience. 
is learning to wait. As we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the areas of growth is learning to wait. This is surely one of the reasons why we need Titus 1 men and Titus 2 women. Showing the younger in the flock how to wait. We need older, wiser men and women, don't we? Wisdom, too often, sadly, does not come with age. But thankfully, in our case, many times it has. In a healthy church, it does, doesn't it? It should come with age. Elderly, be the kind of Christian that waits well, and young people, where they hit the mark, learn to wait well by watching them. God has made provision for your eternal life, and the saints will persevere till the end. And Daniel, in his understanding and his shining wisdom, is told to wait until his end, He's told, it seems pretty clearly, you shall rest or die and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Now that is a wonderful verse, isn't it? I love how Daniel ends. You want to hear it again? Daniel 12, 13. You're just going to close it up and walk away, weren't you? Hear Daniel 12, 13 and let it leave an indelible mark on you because this text was never just written for Daniel. It wasn't just cathartic for Daniel. It wasn't meant to be therapy for Daniel. It's theology for us. Daniel, as you're waiting, learning and growing and shining and turning many toward righteousness, go your way till the end and you will die and you will stand. You'll stand in the right place allotted for you at the end of history. Christ who splits time has come in time and redeemed you so that at the end of time you will stand where you are supposed to stand. So cling to that high-lifted name of Christ today. Allow Him to refine you and make you white while you wait. Old and young, troubled and tame, and rich and poor, studious and steady, men, women, boys, girls, hear from Daniel that the tumult of this world only makes for your perseverance because of Christ's work in you. Your witness in the world is how Michael's text is talked about in Revelation 12. There is no condemnation from the devil that shall ever stand, but you will stand on the day. The sweet, sweet, sweet blood of Jesus. Hear how the Bible ends, and that's how we'll end this sermon. It's the first five verses of the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, 1-5. But catch the parallels with the apocalyptic literature in Daniel about the end. Then the angel showed me, that is, the apostle John, who also was an old man facing real tough times, showed him the river. The river of the water of life. 
And that river was bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Better than the Tigris, isn't it? Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We sure need the healing, don't we? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Talk about shining. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's take just a little bit, half a minute, and think about these things. Pray silently. Now let me lead us in a prayer of petition.